0: Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham.
1: Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 57, index 57 that is. Uh, we got Aaron Roberts on the show today, visiting us from Austin. And uh, like most of our guests, I, I feel like. Um, and and there's Graham. There's Graham Gansel in, uh, in New
0: Orleans. Hello! <laughs> <It's> a... <laughs> He's gone fuzzy already. Again? All right, yeah. so you I, just- I just... feel like you've gone fuzzy. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna fix this. You just keep, just keep talking us in.
1: And uh, and I'm non-fuzzy, and I'm back in Nova Scotia. I had a day, I had a, not a day, several days. I had a week in the field last week, in, oh. literally in a field or more of a clearing, really, in Boston, hmm. doing GPR experiments. It's pretty fun.
0: That sounds and, awesome.
1: Yeah, Why? it was it was really good. It was my first exposure to like near surface geophysics.
0: Why were you acquiring the data?
1: Uh, we um, we're working on a, a really interesting project to try and get better at um, detecting hazards and buried infrastructure on construction sites. So a bit of bit of near surface geophysics, and basically to do the interpretation of those GPR images automatically. That would be the that's our goal.
0: But why were you collecting the data? Uh,
1: well, th- this was actually a field experiment to help us calibrate that. Automatic interpretation.
0: Oh, so is this is this a potential offering for Agile Scientific? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, acquisition. It's,
1: it's not a potential offering. It is literally an offering. literally off, the
0: first run.
1: <laughs> of last week. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I you know I I think um, people are thinking about you know it's we've got a lot of data in geophysics, but we don't have a lot of labels. Uh, so one way to make sure you got labels is to Actually, bury the stuff that you're going kind to of then detect, and then you know what everything is already. So it's kind of like a physical modeling experiment. And so did um, you go?
0: So you went in a field with an excavator and buried bodies and manhole covers and stuff.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I well, hardly any bodies in the end. It was very hard to to get hold of that kind of thing. But, Their um,
0: histocompatibility is, the <laughs> is relatively low. <laughs> <laughs> but, but
1: yeah, it was. Um, and just getting to play with kind of real live action geophysics, and um, Evan's used GPR before, but I haven't, so it's kind of a new experience. It's kind of funny, right, because you don't, it's not like seismic geophysics where you kind of go out and go, okay, well I'm planting a receiver here, so I know exactly where this is, that's where my data is coming from. You're pushing like a shopping cart around, like a trolley, It's kind of jiggling around all over the place, <laughs> and and the and the you know G- G- GPS isn't good enough to tell you where those traces are coming from. So if you haven't, so you've pretty much got to kind of measure everything in, and then say, okay, I'm going to try and get my data from these spots. But um, yeah, a bit of a bit of a survey challenge. It's not just like whip it out the back of the van and trundle it around over a field.
0: Wait, do, okay, so you have some sort of low-resolution geospatial information, and then how do you rectify, do you rectify the, the the locations during processing, like doing surface statics or something? Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, we were lucky enough to have a, a flat field and enough room to kind of measure out what we wanted to do. But um, yeah, I mean, how, I, I don't know, operationally, it's potentially a bit of overhead there with figuring out where everything is. Or you go for like a differential GPS, which you can plug into the instrument and then, you know, the location of every line to within a few centimeters.
0: Okay. We didn't have access to that this time so, around. Can I make a suggestion? A, yeah. marketing, a marketing suggestion? Please. So on the way, and I'm, I'm an expert at this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um on that, The uh, Yeah, there you go. The pen <laughs> out. On the website, the offering is uh, Agile Scientific. We'll push things around in a shopping cart for you as long as they're (laughs) GPRs.
1: Yeah? Well, that's that's pretty catchy. Yeah. I'll buy some.
0: (laughs) I think so. Our guest today is Aaron Roberts. Aaron, welcome. Thank you. How are you guys? Good. Where are you? Uh, I'm in my kitchen. (laughs) Okay. Where's your kitchen?
2: It is in... uh my apartment, which is in Austin, Texas, I believe. May have been mentioned
0: before, but I'm not sure. Yes, yes. Well, welcome from Austin. Thank you. Um, We're actually, Matt and I are headed over to the great state of Texas tomorrow. Oh, yeah, what area? What area? Houston. Ooh. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. That'll be interesting. It will be interesting. I'm very excited to see how recovery efforts are going and things like that. We're going to do a hackathon over there. It's going to be cool. That's
2: right. I remember you mentioned that now.
0: So, um, Aaron is a friend of Undersampled Radio via his friend who's been on the show twice. His name's Ethan. So, um, we're glad that we could we could get another real data scientist on board because you are, in fact, a data scientist at Lawn Starter, right? That
2: is true. That is indeed true. What is Lawn Starter? Well, uh, Lawn Starter is basically Uber for lawn care. So, um the long and short of it is basically that we run a marketplace where if you are a provider of lawn care, we help you find people that need a lawn care provider. And I think that's about it.
0: If I needed help um, with my, the subsurface part of my lawn, could I hire Agile scientific to put a shopping cart around the lawn?
2: I'll uh, see if we can get that on the uh, on the
1: roadmap. Okay. Thank if you. If anyone thinks about what's going on under the lawn.
0: Yeah, well, there could be
1: unexploded ordnance under there. That's very (laughs) (laughs) great.
0: No, I was thinking more about um, agricultural constraints, maybe. um, What do you mean? I don't know. I I don't know. Do they run subsurface piping or something? I don't don't know anything about lawn care.
2: Uh, Actually, I don't know anything about lawn care either.
0: (laughs) Yep, okay. (laughs) Um, Well, that's good, so so what do you do at Lawn Starter if you don't know anything about lawns?
2: Yeah, basically I'm the data guy. I help uh, push data around and I help try to use it to make our, essentially like matching algorithms a little bit smarter. Um, you know, Part of our premise is that we can make the business a little bit more lucrative for the providers of lawn care and one of the ways that we do that is uh, basically using location data to try to match them to customers. Um, You know, the more time they spend in traffic, the less time they spend mowing lawns. And um, since it's also a seasonal business, they kind of have to greedily accept whatever job that they can, which means that uh, just because, you know, it happens to be the case that they get a customer in South Austin and then a customer in North Austin early on in the season, they've now just set themselves up for uh, not exactly an optimal scenario. So that's one of the areas in which we can help
1: yeah right that's that sort of optimization problem seems like it must be coming up quite a bit with various sort of Location-based service offerings where people are connecting a market like yeah, that. yeah exactly is, is that big? Is there a lot of stuff going on and research wise in that area? Do you keep up with that or are you kind of just trying lots of things and seeing what works? we just
2: try lots of things and see how they Work uh, one of the nice things that we have is an a-b testing system in our software that allows us to kind of uh, Experiment and you know actually see are we making a difference in the ways that we intend to when we try out these new features Um so yeah, not not a ton of research in terms of like what are other people actually doing with this, but um, Yeah, we, we have a couple of different ways of kind of Dipping our toes into the water without uh, fully committing to any given idea with that uh, testing system
1: Yeah, right. What what does it look like this sort of? Um, you know cycle time from like hey I wonder if that could work to actually like implementing it in an a B test like what is that? I mean, I guess it depends on what the idea is, but. Um... Yeah, so
2: like actually, for the stuff that I work on, actually pretty quickly. And I think that's mainly because um, I don't really have to rely, because of the system that we have built, I don't have to rely on very many other people to actually get a test out there. Mm-hmm. Um, because I actually do the ETL on our software's data, I can create the features that I need. Um, you know, I'm self service in that way. And then. Additionally, I maintain some of the endpoints on an API that we run that essentially give the results of my algorithms to our software so um, You know, it's I'm actually my own bottleneck in in that sense
1: (laughs) a Klein bottle yeah Uh, That's yeah, that's cool. So um, so you could basically uh, You know have an idea while you're brushing your teeth in the morning and have it rolled out by the
2: afternoon kind of thing Maybe not that fast, but yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> yeah. we could, we could have the idea in the backlog and then, um, but yeah, I mean, it, depending on how complicated it is, it could take, you know, a week or a couple of days. Yeah. Right.
1: Oh, that's cool. And, and are you guys rolled out now, like across what, across the U S or do you go yeah. city by city like Uber does?
2: Yeah. It's city by city. Like we launch in a given market individually. Um, when I started, we were in. I don't know, like 20 or so markets, and we're actually, uh, at this moment, uh, expanding into um, a much larger number of markets.
0: Mm, awesome.
2: Are you Probably. in Canada yet? Ooh, I don't know about that. I don't, right. I don't know if there are any plans for that.
0: Snow <laughs> shoveling? No snow shoveling services offered?
2: Well, actually, that, that idea has been thrown around. I mean, we have a really seasonal business, and a lot of these lawn care providers also in the winter yeah. do, uh, you know, stuff like that as well. Um, you know, I think it's really a, a matter of uh, building that into essentially like the provider and the customer software. The the marketplace, there's no reason that it couldn't handle that kind of thing already.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like how um, about uh, snow plowing for your neighborhood? Yeah, exactly. I don't know who pays for that, pays for that either. HOA is maybe. Yeah, I guess. Um, how about you, Matt? Um, how's your lawn care? Are you in need of? Um,
1: yeah, we, I mean, you know, we just have a sort of random relationship with someone that we probably saw cutting someone else's lawn and um, got in touch with them. And they, uh, you know, I, I would say they drop by about the right amount. We, I'd say we probably turn them away, you know, maybe one time in three that they come. Maybe they have come a bit too often sort of thing and we don't quite need it cutting again yet so it's a, it's a bit sort of haphazard but they're very professional they seem really good but yeah I have no idea like how they do, like this is Nova Scotia so it's pretty things are pretty word-of-mouth and pretty old school they probably just have a haphazard way of growing their network Um you know <laughs> yeah but and the snow thing you know we have a really long driveway so I care quite a bit about how I how our driveway gets plowed i would definitely take advantage of that because the guy that we have right now is a nightmare i mean he basically destroys the driveway it's completely destroyed like by the spring it's I, i've literally got probably half a ton of gravel sitting at the top of my driveway where he's just like scraped it off the driveway and into the lawn basically
2: well you're, you're touching on one of our uh value props for our customers at least um you know, we you have a bad experience with our provider, we have a whole network of providers, we can get you another one fairly simply. Right,
1: so you have a ratings kind of thing when yeah, yeah. You, you get instant feedback. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the marvelous thing about, you know, I mean, say what you like about Uber, but it's, they've nailed the sort of customer experience, like it's just such a easy, great thing, and the ratings are great. I just think such a fantastic way of essentially Getting the behaviors you want out
2: of both sides of the market. Yeah. Yeah, exactly Or at least incentivizing the behaviors that you want.
1: Yeah Um, Yeah, I mean I guess it doesn't work all the time, but
2: Right because if you have uh, You know it's related to if you launch a new market you you know you have uh, A limited amount of supply Well, they could be rated poorly every single time, and they're still going to get every job because we have a limited amount of supply, and that's related to you know just the dynamics of how do you spin up a new market, right? So the incentives are there. Your uh, your luxury as far as um, can you actually get a good provider or not? Well, that really does depend on the volume of the supply. Yeah, yeah.
0: It sounds like you're doing a lot of different types of things at Launchstarter. I am. So you're A/B testing, you're designing <laughs> algorithms. You're building web stuff. Is there what? What don't you do? Maybe <laughs> is a better question. Yeah,
2: I don't know. I don't. Uh, I don't prioritize the feature list that our other engineers build. How about that? But there are there are several of us that are doing. Um, probably, you know, stretch a little bit too thin in terms of the number of things we're responsible for. But you know, that's a startup.
0: What? What? Um, you know, we've been talking a lot of recently here on the show about data science as a as a profession. What? In your view, are the top things a real, actual data scientist working for a company? What, what, what are the top things that they need to know how to do?
2: Well, I would say first and foremost, they need to know a little bit of math. You can uh, go, you know, learn Python all you want, but if you can't make sense of the numbers, then, you know, you're, you're not going to be very useful. Um, but I think one of the main things is just being, you know, flexible enough to know how to, Pull data from anywhere and start making use of it. I mean, that's kind of the essence of the job title. Is we're, uh, you know, producing data everywhere, and we're trying to figure out how to use it. So if you can't go get the data, and you know, make it manageable, then uh, I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's, uh, yeah, I mean that's something we deal with as
1: as, you know, earth scientists as well, right? It's just you can't always get it the thing you want. You might have to use some kind of proxy. Yeah. Um, even the, the proxy might have other issues or not be yeah, very accessible. The, the buried corpses and whatnot that we were mentioning before. <laughs> but yeah, use use what you can get and try and maybe find a way to get the data you really want, like starting today. Um, you know, it, I mean, and that is, is part of the fun of it, isn't it? How did you, what is your background? Did you start out as a mathematician or a computer scientist or?
2: Sort of. Um... I did math and physics in undergrad, and then I went to grad school for physics. But um, I left after, I guess it was three and a half years. I got my master's and decided to move on. Um, but yeah, so formerly, you know, in the in the physical sciences, but I'm far enough away from it that, that that's all gone. That's all in the past.
1: Right. That's interesting. That I, I definitely detect a trend. I don't know if it's just our guests or the, and the people I know, but there's definitely physics plays as has a um, there's a big group of people in our space who've come
2: from a physics background. Yeah, it does seem to be that way. And I think actually, you know, when you asked before what are the things that data scientists needs to be able to do, um, actually being able to do research I think is a critical part of it. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, with the variety of problems that I'm exposed to at my job, for example, I don't know all the algorithms, I don't know all of the types of ETL frameworks, like, I have to be able to go kind of on the fly, be able to figure out what is the right approach for the particular problem that we're on, and then additionally learn the tools and learn the solutions. So if you can't actually do that kind of research, then, I'm, you know, you need a very structured environment to actually even uh, contribute, and I think that's probably where, like, the, the preference towards, um, you know, advanced degree, especially, like, physical sciences students comes from.
0: Yeah, right. How much um, research type stuff actually goes on in business? Like, how much, how much testing happens before pl- uh, toolkits are decided on, and et cetera?
2: I don't know. I'm not actually sure that I can generalize on that. Um, and it probably depends on um, you know, the company as well. We push things out with a level of rigor that you know, maybe other companies might not want to push things out on because they have the luxury to wait. So I would say the answer to that is highly, highly variable.
0: Hmm. Well, it's cool. There's a lot of stuff out there to learn, and that's, that's the best part about working in this wide framework, right? You, you have like a lot of different problems, and you get to learn a whole bunch of new stuff every time you do a new project.
2: Yeah, it's also a bit of a problem because everything sounds so cool. you got to figure out what problems <laughs> to focus on. Like, Should I play with this tool today or this tool tomorrow? Like, No, no, we got, we got actual problems to solve, so let's make sure that we keep that in mind as well.
0: That's true. I've been um, talking to a friend about uh, doing machine learning based on graph instead of based on relational databases, and he's he's actually he's, Matt knows him. His name's Steve Purvis. He assembled this, and he's ridiculously good. He's like, I, I don't understand how he works so quickly, but he's assembled this awesome list of like graph ML uh, resources, right? And it's uh-huh. it's like forty pages long. I'm like, how do I the list is for you know, The list, yeah, it's wow. ridiculous. It's awesome. So I, I, feel like I need to uh, <laughs> is start it to into sorted at least. So my hackathon, <laughs> my hackathon project is going to be just purely reading what's <laughs> <be> going through. <laughs> Produce the cliff notes. Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, that,
2: oh, here's exciting. a good question.
0: Here's a good question that I wanted to ask that I didn't remember to write down the show notes. Uh, oh,
2: I didn't get to prepare.
0: Yeah, so uh, you don't have to answer this um, right now, but you have to answer it by the end of the show. Okay. (laughs) So uh, the the hackathon is a geoscience-oriented gig, and that's just because we have a lot of geoscience friends. Um, And the theme is machine learning. However, we're also going to be having this hackathon in a town that was recently impacted by a hurricane. So we're also trying to incorporate disaster relief stuff in. So chew on that for this the length of this episode and and come back to us with a cool project at the end that I can steal and use. That's <laughs> a, a tough reporter. <laughs> That's all. That's all. Machine learning, uh, disaster relief
2: what what kind of data is already out there about uh, about this kind of stuff? I haven't done any exploration. Like can you get any any data and put it on a map?
0: Yes, that's certainly a thing. There's all sorts of weather related data. There's um, information available about uh, recovery efforts. All the FEMA data is public most of the FEMA data is publicly available. It's a lot of cool stuff uh, relating to uh, resources like human resources and and materials resources for the recovery efforts. So, I don't know, I haven't actually decided on a project yet. I have like about a bunch of ideas and I don't know. Matt, are you gonna work on a project? Do you know what you're gonna do? Uh,
1: I, I usually start with some sort of dream of maybe maybe hacking on something and then not really getting very far with it. Um, yeah, I mean like like all of us, I've got a list in my head of about 30 things I'd love to try at some point. And yeah. Some of them have been on that list for probably three years. <laughs> it's pretty sad. Um, but yeah, I, there's been some good chat on the Software Underground about uh, some projects last couple of hours anyway this morning. There were some ideas. So It's been interesting hearing from the people who have been at a food bank, say, you know, trying to help distribute food and just saying stuff like uh, what did Rafael Pinto said yesterday. Um, he spent the whole time just reading um, or trying to find, interpret and translate um, best before dates on food items. And that seemed to be a massive sort of, it's not the sort of thing you think about, right? But yeah. it's actually a real pain in the neck when you're trying to get a lot of food out to a lot of people and you don't really know where the food came from. So, um, it, I, you know, I, we will have some people there who've been involved in projects like that and a couple of people who know about a large number of projects with FEMA and other things. So. I think we'll be able to find projects that line up with people's interests and the sort of data we've got access to. Um, yeah, so uh, what, I, I want to ask Aaron, um, it, is the company distributed? Is everyone based in Austin? or Are you from there? Or how did you wind up in Austin?
2: I wound up in Austin originally because of grad school. I went to UT here. Um, nice. The company has a couple of distributed team members um, but yeah, the, Austin is the the primary office location. All right. It seems like there's a really sound, solid tech scene there. Yes, definitely, and and growing. Uh, I don't know if you know how much Austin is growing, but um, no, it's, it's getting crowded. I actually, so I was at UT for three and a half years. I moved around for a couple of years, moved back to Austin, and in the two years I was gone, it's just not even the same place anymore. The skyline is different. I mean, there are just condos that weren't there before. And wow. um yeah, there's a there are a lot of cranes.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, well that's uh, great for Austin, I guess. It's always a bit of a I don't know, catch twenty two, isn't it? Like you want you want to see places do well and be successful, but you also would like to have an affordable place to live and yeah,
2: park. And there's there's that, and I don't know if you've heard the phrase keep Austin weird. But <laughs> yeah. you know, as more and more people come here, I think that kind of is less and less a reality.
1: Yeah, right it will be interesting to see what happens. Maybe you'll end up with like a weird ghetto. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> I don't know if
1: that would be good or not. Yeah, no, but, um, <laughs> uh, but that's cool. I think you know, it's it's really um, it's really awesome when you get these places that just have this kind of real sense of common purpose and people are sharing ideas or you know um, to, that you've got that kind of offline you know, network slash community of, of uh, folks because I'm sure there's lots of events going on and things that are oriented towards the tech scene. Yeah, definitely, kind of
2: and, and even like just downtown Austin is kind of small, so like just physically you have proximity to a lot of the same types of people, so um, I think that's a good thing as well.
1: Yeah, right, well, that's cool. Um, so I'm <laughs> looking at, did you write these things or is this gra- like? I feel like cryptocurrency and baseball, I think Graham has to have written those.
0: Yeah, those are his notes. <laughs> well, okay, so here's the deal. I was in Austin the other day. We were ch- we just went out, and Aaron and I, the first time we met, we were just chatting, and we went all over, over these topics, and I, I don't know. I just think they'd be cool things to talk about.
2: Yeah, we did. We did touch on a lot of topics. So I just ba-
0: wanted to basically but- record the conversation we already had. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, the baseball model, are you, uh, are you another one of these uh, fantasy baseballists?
2: No, that, that's kind of a past life. It's actually, um, that project alone might be the reason that I left grad school for physics. <laughs> uh, so I guess the story was for me, um, as an undergrad, I never wrote a single line of code. Um, when I went to grad school, I wanted to do theory originally then come my first summer i needed funding so i joined an experimental group and i had to analyze some data in matlab and that was about the end of it Uh, i just really enjoyed working in matlab and i don't really know where i got the idea for the baseball project but um i had an idea about some stuff that i could do with baseball statistics and essentially you know try to predict who's going to win a game um, that kind of stuff um yeah there there was a good period of time where I was pretty interested in gambling on sports, but uh like i said that that's that's maybe in the past
1: yeah that's yeah. cool though i I feel like a lot of I, I definitely identify with that sort of discovery of computers and that realization of whoa i like yeah suddenly yeah. you suddenly you look at every single thing like problem anyway differently
2: yes exactly like the 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 particular problem that I was trying to work on was. Um, essentially measuring the size of um, a, a laser, essentially, like the diameter of the profile, you know? And it was very tedious, and so I spent a lot of time like actually building a program that would make it much faster, and that's when I kind of like realized you know, the, the power of being able to write code and um, you know, just automate things.
1: Yeah, right, and and the thing that I, I think, um... I've only sort of more recently started to think about is the added bonus sort of, of doing it that way is that it's explicitly documented and intelligible to someone like in a way that a, a kind of hacky manual whatever heterogeneous workflow with Excel and yeah, the back yeah. of an envelope is just never going to be reproducible. Code actually is like no no this is exactly what I'm doing. Like, this well, is exactly I will
2: say. <laughs> I will say it is a challenge to produce you know Reusable and maintainable code yeah, sure. sure. Uh, there there isn't you know an art to doing that um, But yeah, it's not like it, it does all exist in one place like technically if you can look at a script You can kind of figure out what it's doing so
1: Right yeah, and it's it's completely sort of explicit which I think you know when I look back at I mean, there's all sorts of things I did early in my career and at grad school that there's no way I documented them well enough to know how I actually did them.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that that's actually probably the reason that the whole baseball project didn't make it a little farther than I did because I had several manifestations of the project, but the first one was in MATLAB, and then the second one was in like VBA because I was trying to be an actuary at the time, and that's a language they wanted to see. And every one of them, like, I, the the idea was very simple, but I re-implemented everything from scratch each time I did it because I wasn't essentially very good at software development. I didn't really know. So it was a little bit of a limiting factor, actually. Um, yeah, I don't know. But, uh, it's like I said, it's probably good that those things got left in the past.
1: <laughs> but they were pivotal nonetheless.
2: Yeah,
0: it's, that's true. It's always interesting to go back and read your old code because it's it's so much junkier than your oh, yeah. stuff. It's, it's depressing.
2: It's depressing to read your old code.
0: No, I love it. I see it as a sign of personal development. That's true. That's true. You oh, look in
2: God. this directory up here, it's good. You look in the directory below that, not so good,
0: so <laughs> progress. That's right. Hey, um, speaking of which, why is it so hard to install CUDA and uh, the deep learning, the deep neural network framework for CUDA?
2: I don't know the answer CDN. to that question.
0: <laughs> it's uh, driving me nuts. <laughs>
2: I've had installation issues with packages in the past, but that particular one, I don't know. At launch started our data's not big enough to really warrant throwing that kind of, like, toolage at it, I think.
0: I, I just, so I'm, I'm updating one of my Amazon images right now because I, to use TensorFlow with the uh, spe- specific GPUs, you need the new version of CUDNN, and it's, like, it's the worst. I don't know. It's yeah. one of the worst installs I've ever done. And I'm going back through this. I was thinking about this today. I don't think I've ever actually successfully installed CUDA on a computer with a monitor, with like a graphics <laughs> display. I don't think I've ever gotten it to work.
1: That's funny. Oh, wow. That's a shame. It is a shame. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I've,
0: I've, so, yeah. There you
1: go. Yeah. Well, I guess I don't have it on my, my laptop, but I have it on my Mac. Seemed okay, but
0: it's still, not no. so bad on a headless machine. But I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I just remember hours and weeks going by of me trying to get this thing working in the office, and I was just like, ah, screw it, I'll put it on Amazon.
2: Yeah, it's a it is a highly prevalent package, though. So I don't know. Something to the effect of user error is coming to mind here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so I've been the reason I'm doing this is because I've been playing with TensorBoard recently. Uh-huh. You guys with TensorBoard, I've not. It's cool. It's um. A way to visualize your various operations that you write in TensorFlow, and uh, I'm—I was headed in the direct direction. Now I've finished, but I, I started the project because I wanted to figure out how to um, very in a, in a pretty way visualize uh, latent space information in neural networks. And TensorBoard makes it very nice. Um, if you haven't used it, totally recommend it. But in playing with this stuff, it's made me really realize how graph is applicable to operations, not just data. And um, I kind of so, if we, you know, if you think about a graph database as being the antithesis of a relational database, um, then I I find that you can think about uh, any sort of operations, like computational operations, as a graph in which the nodes are operations and the links are uh, information flow. So it, ma- it makes me think of um, abstract algebra, you know, like this, this you sort of like building this structure in operation space. And I'm sure you could find like isomorphic, there's, there's some like set of isomorphic graph, operational graphs. I don't. I, I actually don't know where I'm going with this idea. I've just been thinking about this a little bit over the past week. What do you think, Matt? Is, is how's your tensor board experience?
1: Uh, yeah, I haven't thought about it as deeply as you have. I don't think. I mean, for us, it's just been essentially a very easy way to see what's happening with your um, well, GANs or ConfNets or whatever, because um, you know they produce a lot of output potentially. So it can be a bit hard to make sense of everything. Um, do you, in in an alternative
0: I, setting, do you do you visualize or represent the internal state of your networks? No, just just with TensorBoard. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? Because it's so easy, I guess.
1: Yeah. Uh, now, did I? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, basically, because it's so easy. Um, but I haven't paid a lot of attention to the graph representation of the network. Yeah. Um I mean I'm I'm really interested in graphs as a way to express relationships between data elements, but I haven't thought about it as an abstraction of I don't know, algebra or whatever.
0: It does yeah, it doesn't have to be algebra, but like any sort of operation.
1: A logical system or whatever. Is it yeah, yeah. I don't know.
0: Um, okay, so yeah, so in going through this thing I realized that I haven't spent enough time sort of analyzing internal state of uh, my systems. And it makes you very quickly realize what is what is useless. Like I, I built hmm. a network the other day and it's like half of the layers, half the stuff I put in there wasn't do, wasn't learning anything, wasn't doing anything. All so right. you just, you can visualize that information, boop, you can just drop it, and then you have a much, much faster performing thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, things so, just never get act- activated, essentially.
0: Yeah, or even or if they get activated, they don't change over time, over training epics or whatever, so. That's mm. really interesting. Yeah, um, so whether you're using TensorBoard or not, I, I totally recommend now, <laughs> as of the past week, visualizing in some quantitative way the internal state of the network is Quickly, you'll see that you're wasting your time.
2: So, can you on... kind of use that as a as a tool to um, understand, like, you know, the the architectures that you're using when you're developing a neural net? Like, um, I mean, can you can you use that to inform, like, your development choices? I guess.
0: Indeed. So, I think that the, probably the the reason that TensorFlow was created, I'm just guessing, is to is to uh, debug. Uh, not ne- I, I just keep saying girl networks, but it could be anything, um, you know, any sort of op- large operational uh, workflow. Um, and yeah, it's it's pretty amazing what you see. I'm going to try to pull one up right here while we're talking.
2: Okay. I'm going to make a note to myself to actually check this out. I saw that you mentioned it before, but I uh, just haven't had any time to do it.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's it, 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 um, if you know TensorFlow, it's real easy to to get into it. This is gonna work. Yeah, it's gonna work live. All right, folks. If you're listening, if you're tuned in live on YouTube, you're in for a treat. If you're not watching this, if you're listening to this as a podcast, you're not in for a treat. <laughs> but anyway, I'm gonna share it anyway. Here we go. Oh, that'd be a
1: good hackathon project. Adding sound to TensorBoard.
0: Yeah. There you go. So here's a here's a tensor board Can everyone see this? Yeah. So um, this is a uh, is just a. Fairly shallow convolutional neural network, and so you've got these. Here's a convolutional node. It's like a super node, and inside the super node, you've got operations, um, which are, you know, your standard thing. And you can see your outputs here. So on this subgraph, you see your loss function. And um, again, if you're not watching this, what you get is sort of this interface between super nodes, which represent like logical operations, and their flow the information flowing between them as you can see over here you have these real thick edges or links uh, that those represent tensors that are larger in dimension than the smaller ones um, and then you go through a validation operation here so it's a pretty cool debugging tool to, to look at this the um, structure of a of a workflow but it's also good to analyze the loss and the state here. Oh, there's some random noise. That's not a good state. But anyway, um, I'm going to stop pointing at things that the podcast listeners can't see now, but check it out. It's lovely.
1: Yeah, it reminds me a bit of um, well, those, those, well, they don't remind me, but it makes me think a bit of seismic processing and how awesome it would be to have that kind of dynamic um, view into um, into your seismic processing flow.
0: Ah, you've never algorithms. tried size up then?
1: Who? who size, now? Up. size Up? Size Up? I've never even heard of Size Up.
0: Well, get on it, man. It's uh it's okay, so um there's a guy named Art Gray in Houston with a company called Generation Services. Okay. He and I'm totally gonna get this wrong, but I think it was his partner and Art who built the original size up. And now it's owned, they sold it, it's owned by someone else.
1: And what does it, which process, can it plug into any processing system?
0: No, no, it is a, it is. A oh, it is processing a processing system. Software. Uh, Symax now owns it. God, why are these names are terrible? Symax? Symax and size up at, Yeah, Symax technology, Symax tech.com. Uh, but they do have a flow sort of like a workflow diagram so basically what we're talking about here Aaron, is um you receive raw noise records which is just energy propagated to the earth and you want to make it you want to somehow turn it into geology ish stuff and to do that you have to go through a lot of wave field processing steps and this software does that graphically like um it's actually kind of vba-ish but you do, <laughs> you like plug modules together using, or that's actually, you know what it's like? It's like LabVIEW. You like plug yeah, modules yeah. Okay, together with links. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I, I uh,
1: yeah, I kind of like that. I also like the um, block programming sort of paradigm, like Scratch, and...
0: Yeah, what's that Google made with code? Um, language. I don't know, but... Um, the
1: uh, They had a development environment for Android. I think it still exists, and I think it's also like Scratch, an MIT product now. Um, App Inventor was a mm-hmm. way to build Android apps in this uh, visual programming environment. And it always struck me that that would be a really great environment to build.
2: Seismic yeah, could you, could you take that TensorBoard sort of view and use that to actually construct your networks?
0: Is that a possibility? Right. It, it doesn't exist that way now, but that's a really good idea. Yeah.
1: You can't edit them at all in that view, eh?
0: No. No. No, unfortunately not. Um, there's a... I'm, I'm sure you've, you have kids, Matt. I'm sure you've played with this. Google made with code. Yes?
1: Uh, I don't think so, no. doesn't sound oh. familiar.
0: It's the it's same thing, block programming. Okay. Uh, uh, cool. IDE where you where there's they give you little challenges and you play with it. It's it's horribly addicting. Like I, I think when I found out about it, I wasted half a day playing with it. I'm, I'm just on the web right yeah. now trying to block what,
1: what I really what remember. The- like you know, I played with a thing called um, AVS way back, which sounds a bit like it might be a bit like LabVIEW. And it was basically a way of building a flow and data went in, and then you could like have visualizations of different you know, basically just plug in a visualization block wherever you like and uh, configure everything within its piece. And, you know, it's basically just programming. But it seemed like a really nice way of sort of exposing the complete API because it was so visual and you were choosing everything from a box of stuff, like from a palette. You could see all the options open to you at every spot, right? It's like, what can I do with this data? Oh, well, here's, you know. Um, uh, Because it strikes me that API exploration and discovery is a real, I don't want to call it a roadblock, but I mean, there's a speed bump there for beginners, right? Um, There's a speed bump there for experts
0: who are switching tickets.
1: Yeah, sure, experts too. I mean, I I, I practically every day discover another NumPy NumPy function I didn't know about. Yep. Um, You know, that I've been doing in some wacky way or slow way before.
2: I know that feeling. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, it almost seems to go on forever.
2: It's almost worth, like, even when you know exactly how you might accomplish something, still search for it on Stack Overflow because chances <laughs> are there's a NumPy function.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the sort of Aladdin's cave of APIs.
0: <laughs> hey, did you get, did you see the show note here about uh, Tortuga Ag Tech? Yeah, I what saw is, that. Yeah, I I don't really know actually, but. Um, there's a there's a link in there for anybody who's interested. I think that they're trying to use optical measurements, at least optical, um, and maybe other wavelengths to to analyze growth of crops and and optimize them. Was it, about,
2: was it about the crop growth or was it about the actual like act of harvesting?
0: I, I don't know. You tell me. I, I I only know what is on the splash page.
2: I just remember seeing a fairly uh, nimble-looking robot arm, and yes. so that suggested to me that it was probably for harvesting.
0: Oh, I thought that was just—I thought that was just a camera. Oh well, Maybe it was. I—I I don't know. Yeah. something—you've
1: put something in here about packing, which made me think of like looking at the box and going, "We need it's... a zucchini that's exactly <laughs> this shape,"
2: <laughs> or maybe. Or maybe they can take the zucchini and fit it in whatever package works best. Right.
0: So the question here is, has this data analytics craze gone too far? Or is this a good idea? Well, Which you can, part of
1: it? Just I order mean, something small from Amazon and you find out that they don't have a packing algorithm.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, you're right. <laughs> I think their algorithm is, if it's a certain size, give you this box; otherwise, give you a bigger box. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> I mean, just she, fill d- it with all this weird air packaging.
2: Yeah, I d- had so much packaging from things that were just in way too big of boxes when I moved <laughs> apartments and got some new stuff recently.
0: Yeah, right. I, I mean, I guess, I guess, the question is: Does the does the IoT is it going to live up to its promise? I mean, when we're when we have nimble robot arms with cameras and clippers on the ends, I mean is it... I don't know.
2: I was thinking specifically about the, what, the Tortuga Ag Tech, was that what they were called? Um, yeah. I was thinking specifically in that region, like it definitely is worthwhile, I think, to automate the harvesting of plants. You know, I told you that I was growing hydroponically in my uh, apartment and it would take me, like, half an hour to pick the lettuce that I need for, you know, just one harvest and a salad for a couple of days. Like, it's really? not—it's a highly manual process. And, like, granted, I was, like, sort of fighting the geometry that I was in a little bit. But <laughs> still, going in there and manually doing that, you know, if you wanted to be, you know, a small operation hydroponic grower, like, there's a lot of manual labor involved with that, let alone, like, actually, you know, optimizing your plant growth,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. So the answer is
2: yes. I believe, yeah. I, I mean, maybe or maybe not for the like actual optimization of the growth, but for actually uh, helping you accomplish some of the physical tasks, for sure. There's definitely room for help there. Well, why not, why not growth optimization? My first thought there is because it's almost too easy to grow hydroponically. So I'd never grown a plant in my entire life. I got this system. We set up a water pump, it you know makes sure that we water the plants at some frequency. I turn on a light, and I had huge lettuce plants, and I've never done this before, so like <laughs> it was so easy, it was so easy and so like
1: it turns yeah. out that nature's already done the optimization,
2: <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess optimization makes sense when you've got a huge scale where it's like you know we improve our efficiency by a percent, and that's a lot of money, but Um, sorry and I'm just thinking about my own use case like you know where I'm just a small guy and I have a few plants that I'm managing there's no reason that I would optimize that but what I would want help with is the actual work of going and um, you know harvesting these plants because it is a lot of work actually
0: sure so John Deere sells uh, a tractor for three million bucks that has a GPS system and it that drives your little harvesting wizard around the field and picks your um, Whatever yeah,
2: I'm a hundred percent positive that this exists, like in you know commercial farming. But you yeah. know, what no, I'm, no, it, it does. It, yeah. yeah, but what I'm talking about is like the you know, like I'm one guy and I have a small indoor space that I'm growing in because this whole you need indoor a farm,
0: robot to go in there with scissors. Yeah, and, yeah, <laughs> you, cool. you need some help. Cool, Matt. There you go. You already <laughs> bounce around in fields with shopping carts. Just slap some scissors on that puppy and call it a picking tool.
1: Yeah. Uh, the the most uh, the, the the most kind of, uh, and I assume this was a sort of invention, or at least a realization, um, innovative picking strategy uh, I I know about is the one that they use on cranberries, where they're, you know how to pick cranberries?
0: No, I just can't say I do.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> they're, do. they're hollow, right? So they float. So you just flood your cranberry field, and yep. they'll come off. And now they're on top of the water, and then you just scrape them in, skim them off. So huh. it's easy. It's all—it's you know, just a really cool quirk of nature that there's a really easy way to pick a whole field
2: of cranberries in about fifteen minutes <laughs> <You can laughs> with no view thing. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess only the ones that are ripe come off because the stem is too strong for the ones that aren't ready, or something, or like.
1: I'm. I'm thinking. I don't know how many floods it takes to to pick them, or if they're all ready at once, or quite how that works. But yeah, I think um, it it sort of just all looks after itself. Maybe they have a you know, if if they're slightly underwrite, they use them for a different purpose, like juice or whatever. Don't um, they
0: shake olive trees? Don't they? Have a thing that that's just, right. Yeah, yeah.
1: I yeah, for sure, olives or almonds or something where they just vibrate the whole tree. Yeah, yeah.
0: This is why we've been um, called <laughs> a vaguely science focused podcast. By Imperial College, because we talk about stuff we have no idea what we're talking
1: about. It's the classic pub conversation of half remembered fact, pseudo facts.
2: Yeah, where you, where you transition from. I'm, I'm, I think it might work like this. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely works like this. Turns I mean, out,
0: definitely. it's
1: actually blueberries, and someone tried it once and it didn't work at all. But yeah, it's, but that's how it's
0: it works now, worse isn't. because we actually have Google here and we just refuse to use it. We just keep. Insinuating things. Well, I, I feel would... like you could
1: pick anything with the cranberry strategy if you can just find a dense enough liquid. <laughs> like you could pick apples that way <laughs> with
2: mercury. But, but you have to make sure that the fruit has a difference in density that yeah. is favorable compared to the plant itself, right? Or yeah, uh, the
1: it's compared to the plant, right? Or, and all the other things on the plant. It's a good point. Otherwise, you just break everything. Just anchor, anchor the plant. Yeah, <laughs> all the leaves and all the tree uh, branches, and birds and yeah.
2: Yeah, but you know, fruit when it's ripe, you know, it falls off the tree, right? So that's that's why I was thinking, like, maybe when it's ready, like, you don't actually need that strong of a force or anything like that.
0: Right. Right. It's self-selecting. Aaron, what are you reading these days?
2: Ah, uh, I recently. Started reading a book called "Defending Beef," and oh. yes, this is a, this is something that we haven't talked about yet. Actually, um, <laughs> be cute. well, let's do it. Well, I get my hair cut about once every three months, and a few months ago, I was getting my hair cut, and the person cutting my hair was telling me about some you know health documentary. It was related to the food system and stuff like that. And she was like, yeah, you should totally watch it. And I came home and it just happened to be the case that my girlfriend was watching it. Oh, so, cool. Uh, we watched it. And granted, this documentary was pretty, pretty hokey. But uh, it was about basically promoting a vegan diet. And, mm-hmm. um, but we started watching, or at least I started watching more documentaries that are in kind of the They have a similar thrust I suppose Um, and some commonalities emerged anyway me and my girlfriend decided to try to be uh, vegans which I'm embarrassed to say it out loud but we did Um, but you know how you end up in those uh, echo chambers that are produced by recommendation systems I found myself believing that (laughs) that beef was like the worst thing in the entire world and I know that there are some problems with our Um, food systems and particularly the way that we produce beef on a large scale but I just got to the point where I needed a different opinion other than you know vegan is the best thing you can do for you know the environment and your health and all this kind of stuff and um, so yeah it's called defending beef and it's basically describing it's not defending at all sort of the industrialized you know beef production system that we have but it is talking a lot about the benefits that um, essentially the interaction between cow- cattle and um, grassland has on the ecology and stuff like that so um, it, it was interesting and uh, it is it is interesting I should say and it's uh, good to get a different opinion other than the ones Netflix keeps trying to force down my throat so
0: so did it work? Are you eating steaks again?
2: Uh, well the vegan diet it's kind of like an, at an 80-20 state so uh-huh. You know, on the weekend we we eat meat and other things, and try not to as much during the week.
0: Well, it's probably the, for the best to try to try to, uh, you know, mitigate consumption. That's cool.
2: Yeah, is this... I'm just hungry a lot during the week.
0: <laughs> is this a is the author hahn Neiman? I can Google that right now and let you know. Okay, I just want to make sure I have the right link in the show notes. While you do that, Matt, what do yeah, you think? Yeah, that looks right.
1: I'm just between books, I guess. I just finished the Computer Science Distilled book that I've mentioned before, Um, and I'm just about to start. I think I might. Well, I don't know. I'll probably take some papers to read on the plane tomorrow, but um, I might bring it for the way home. I picked up a book called On the Abolition of All Political Parties by Simone Weil. Or Weil, anyway. Not sure how she pronounces it, but W E I L. it's quite a short little book. I don't normally read political books, so we'll see how far I get with it. But I, I guess, um, you know, I'm curious about the the for and against of um, of political parties. I, I, I feel like maybe they cause more problems than they're worth, but maybe I
2: don't know. So it's, it's of a story. discussion of like our implementation of the party system, but just the idea of a party system, or.
1: I actually don't know anything about it (laughs) other than the title so I don't know if it's for or against Uh, and as I was uh, looking for it now to make sure I got her name right it it looks like it might be uh, an older book so I don't know if it's mostly a sort of philosophical treatment a you know quote unquote timeless philosophical treatment, or uh, if it's specifically about today's parties in some particular country. Uh, oh, it's from 1943. In fact, I'm reading now, so oh. it's definitely not about today's political parties. <laughs> but maybe it has some interesting insights about. Yeah, maybe it will be prophetic. Th- <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking. Let's let's hope it isn't prophetic. Yeah, and I think she's French. So, she probably had some pretty <laughs> direct and awful experience uh, from the time. Well, can well, you read it, Graham?
0: Yeah, thanks. yeah. I'm reading a book called Super Sense by Bruce Hood, which is about the uh, why supernatural beliefs are a thing and how <laughs> human beings come up with these ideas. Um, it's okay. It's not my favorite. You know, uh, did you read the. Book uh, Spook by Mary Roach. No. Okay. So that was that was along the same vein, wow. uh, but I th- it was Mary Roach's book was funny and had what I would call more factual information in it. This book is is good. It's interesting, but it's uh, it's a little lacking in in detail. <laughs> so, uh, yeah.
2: So to be clear, you're talking about
0: aliens. No. I'm talking about ghosts, Uh, okay, and uh, luck, and um, you know, variety of other things.
1: But I guess aliens too. Yeah, yeah, just uh, things that go bump in the night.
0: Yep, yep. Matt, (laughs) hey Matt. Oh, actually, no. Let's let's we have we have another thing to do today. Hey, Aaron. Yes. All right, what's your hackathon project?
2: You know, where my mind went initially was kind of like and this is why I asked what data can you put on a map. I wasn't talking about weather. I was kind of talking about like where the resources exist. So I was kind of trying to think of like yeah. mapping resources to disasters and like population densities. That's mm-hmm. that's as specific as I got in the about five seconds I got to think about it.
0: I like that idea. I mean you could migrate. you could like map in migration of resources or something, like bottlenecks in in resource. Transport. That'd be cool. Tensorboard sounds like tensorboard. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we're off. But I wanted to mention before we go, before we sign off, um, we will be with you next week, live and direct from. And actually, I'm really talking about this weekend from the hackathon. So um, get prepared to uh, see us in hacking action. Do we know what
1: day we might try and do that yet?
0: Um... But I don't know. You're the busy one, man.
1: Yeah. Uh, tell
0: me. Maybe Saturday or Sunday.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, well, we'll try and plan something and get get a link up on the uh, Twitter feed. Okay. And, okay. And, and and
0: Software Underground maybe. Um, yeah, you know, like five minutes before. Yeah. <laughs> Which is sure. usually how we do it. Okay. See you next time on Undersampled Radio. All
1: right. Cheers. Nice to meet you, Aaron.